My friend Jay Weiser, the only cyborg I know. When you and I first started chatting, we were talking after an event that I had delivered uh, at a university in Atlanta, and um, we became friends. In fact, we share the same birthday, which is kind of weird. I mean, that's, you know, what are, what are the chances, one in 365 or whatever? And we chatted for a while, and on one of our conversations on Zoom, uh, you mentioned, and of course I had noticed the, the, uh, the clip-on things on your head that you had cochlear implants. And so this is, you know, we jokingly have said, you know, you're sort of part machine, part human. People see this all the time. And I think most of them have no idea what's really going on there. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that. So tell me about life. I'm looking at your questions here. Tell me about life up until the time you got the implants. Hearing loss was always a concern in the family because uh, we can trace progressive nerve hearing loss. Going back to my great-grandmother, when she came over from Romania, on her naturalization papers, where it talks about distinguishing marks or characteristics, it says deaf. So when she came over, she was already hard of hearing. She was probably in her late 20s, early 30s. My grandmother, her daughter, and three, two of the other siblings, so three out of four, also had hearing loss. So they heard normally for the first part of their life, but typically when they got into their 20s, early 30s, hearing loss continued to progress. And then I saw it with my own father. So it was kind of like, okay, you know, this might happen. And you know, I was always getting tested for hearing. I was like super sensitive. My parents were a little fearful about, you know, what would happen to me. It did get worse. Probably at the age of 24, somebody made a comment at work, like, I don't think you're hearing. And I'm like, oh, crap. You know, what, what's going to happen now? Because there, I think wrongly, there was a stigma with hearing aids. And if, again, you know, in the family, what was going to happen? So I remember going to the air doctor, getting tested, and saying to the air doctor, I think I need hearing aids. And the air doctor, and this shocked me, was, well, you know, maybe we can wait a year. Because once you wear them, you're going to be wearing them for the rest of your life. And I'm thinking to myself, but I want to hear now. So we got the hearing aids. And they were small. They were in the air. And I was nervous. You know, what were people going to think? Now, while they were essentially invisible because they're small in the canal hearing aids, I thought I had Mickey Mouse ears and that everybody would see these. And I remember going into work and coming home after that first day and looking at my wife and said, nobody even noticed that. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, this, this, this is weird. So. Over time, I got progressively stronger hearing aids, and it started to be more of a challenge. So then I needed to get an FM system, which was really funny. So I had attachments to my hearing aids that were receivers, and I had an FM microphone that I could put on the table that would pick up everybody's voices and amplify them. Now, that was really fun because as a consultant, sometimes I'd leave the microphone in the room. And, I, you know, I'd forget to turn it off. And sometimes maybe it was a little intentional. 
So as I walk away, I had the, the, the luxury of knowing what people were saying about me and what was going on behind my back. There was an instance when I left the room, went to the restroom, started walking back, and they were discussing the very thing I had just been talking about. And they were starting to incorporate what I was saying into their discussion, in, into their thinking. And that was probably one of the most rewarding moments that I, that I was actually able to listen in on that. You know, I had to warn people that, you know, that this is going to pick up things. You know, they might have muttered something that, you know, I'll be like, what did you say? I actually heard what they said but I wanted to confirm that what I heard was right. And it was funny because sometimes I'm like, oh, don't, doesn't matter, not important. And I said, you know, I didn't necessarily like that because I did want to know what they said. So I would very often say that, you know, my hearing aids have bullshit filters and I'm guess, guessing they actually worked at that moment. And, and, you know, it probably wasn't important, which would, generally elicit a laugh and then they say well what I said was so it was a good way to get people asked that question again what did you say forces people to think about should I have really have said that and is there a better way to say it or how should I ask that question so fast forward the hearing got continued to get worse to the point where even the, the extra technology was not helping you know, I was probably understanding 30, 40% of what I was hearing. So it wasn't a matter that I wouldn't hear people talking. It was a matter that I didn't understand what was being said. It's kind of like, you know, sometimes you get these emails that are missing letters and letters are jumbled, but you're still able to read what it says. Somehow your brain sees through that. That was kind of like what was happening with my hearing. Random letters were missing. Now, if I had the context, I could put things together. I could make assumptions. Usually, they were right. Sometimes, they were embarrassingly wrong. And I realized that I needed to do something about that. My father had gotten cochlear implants, uh, his first one probably about 12 years before that. So I knew the technology was there. I knew how it made such a huge difference in his life because I actually met people who were using them before my father did. And I said, you need to look into this. This is going to change your life. You know, I just met somebody, you know, who was 65 years old, who was probably more hard of hearing than you. And now she talks on the phone. She goes out with people. She socializes. She's re-engaged. It's the cochlear implants. For me, it was a godsend because my fear always was, you know, what would happen when I lost my hearing? Would I be able to work? Would I be able to do what I love? And the cochlear implants have allowed me to do that. Hearing loss is not hearing loss is not hearing loss. I mean, there, there are multiple flavors of that. Some of it is clearly what I'll call amplitude related, meaning that your ability to hear diminishes based on you know the, the loudness of the signal other times i understand it's frequency related so you can hear certain frequencies and not others can you talk to me a little bit about that the best way of looking at i like to use uh, the analogy of a football field 
So the football field is 100 yards. You have all the different yard lines. And think about the yard lines as frequencies. So you have this continuum of 100 yards, inch by inch, different frequencies, you know, full range. And if you think about the grass on the field, every time a blade of grass moves someplace on the field, your brain is getting an electrical signal that it translates a sound. So sound comes in your ear, hits your eardrum. There are three bones that move back and forth that hit the oval window, which is the entryway into your cochlear, taps that, fluid moves, and you hear. But what was happening with me, it would be as if large patches of grass were dead. They didn't move back and forth anymore. So maybe from the first 30 yards, I heard those were low tones. But as you started getting further, like towards the opposite end zone, that was completely dead. And a large part of the middle had chunks where the grass wasn't moving. So I wasn't getting the signals and the frequency, which is so important to understanding speech, understanding words. The cochlear implant addresses that deficiency because what the brain needed was that electrical signal because the grass wasn't providing it. So the cochlear implant takes sound in through an external processor and converts it to electrical signal. Under the skin is the actual implant. So there's a piece that lays on top of the skin. It has a magnet that connects through the skin to the, to the implant on the inside. And that implant sends a signal along an electrode and it's actually 24 very fine, super tiny electrodes. That wire goes into uh, your cochlear, which is snail-shaped, but about the size of a pea. I'm going to interrupt our conversation for just a second to do a quick lesson in human hearing and how it works so that you'll better understand what Jay's talking about. The outer ear is really well adapted to capture sound waves and guide them into the ear canal on the way to being interpreted as something worth hearing. Our outer ears consist of a number of structures made up of skin and cartilage and six muscles. The ear is technically called a concha, from the Latin word for a seashell. Its main job is to collect and focus inbound sound waves. Those sound waves are aimed by the whirls and ridges of the concha into the pinna, the basin that leads into the ear canal. The ear canal is blocked by the eardrum, a thin membrane like a little pixie cap, about a third of an inch across. Under normal circumstances, the only thing that gets past it is sound waves. Now, when sound waves strike the eardrum, it vibrates, creating a very weak signal. But attached to the back side of the eardrum in the middle ear is a tiny structure of three bones, together called ossicles. These ossicles are physically leveraged against each other so that they amplify the vibrations that strike the eardrum. Now, the amplified signal from the little ossicles behind the eardrum is transmitted onward to a structure called the cochlea, which comes from the Greek word for snail. These are the little pea-sized organs that Jay just referred to, into which surgeons insert the 24 hair-fine wires of the cochlear implant. 
The cochlea are coiled, fluid-filled organs divided by an elastic membrane into an upper and a lower region. This flexible membrane is called the basilar membrane because it provides the foundation or the base upon which most of the hearing machinery that we're going to describe is dependent. The amplified vibrations from the ossicles strike the cochlea, causing the fluid inside to ripple. The ripple becomes a wave that travels along the basilar membrane. And this is where things get really interesting. That membrane is stiff and narrow at the end closest to the backside of the eardrum, but softer and broader at the other end. The narrow, stiffer end is sensitive to high-frequency signals, while the other end, the broader, softer end, is more sensitive to low frequencies. Think of the membrane like a guitar string. When you pluck it and then slide your finger up or down the fretboard, the resonant frequency changes. Different regions of the membrane are sensitive to different frequencies. Now, the underside of the basilar membrane is covered with tiny hair cells, which move with the wave that's created by the ossicles striking the cochlea. These hair cells are sensitive to sound vibrations, and complicated sounds like music or bird song or the trickle of a stream running over river stones or a chorus of frogs stimulate waves to form at different places along the basilar membrane simultaneously. These waves tickle the hair cells in the cochlea, resulting in a stimulus to the cochlear nerve, which in turn informs the brain that a sound is inbound for interpretation. The tiny wires that are implanted in Jay's cochlea serve as proxies for these hair cells, which in Jay's case, no longer work. And in that little space, how that electrode is placed determines what you hear. So I don't have the full spectrum of millions of blades of grass. What I have are 24 distinct areas across that football field. So I get a, you know, a little bit of the lows, a little bit of the, you know, different places in the, in the mid range and up to the higher range. And it's amazing because just by your brain getting that, it fills in the rest. I mean, you have to learn. Your brain, you know, has to figure that out. For some people, I mean, for me, it you know, it was a matter of, you know, weeks and a couple of months. For other people, you know, it can take, you know, multiple months, you know, depending on what kind of hearing they had before, depending on how much they practice, how much, you know, they really focus on learning. And, uh, you know, it's been amazing. And the nice thing is, you know, it's kind of like being bionic, but unlike Lindsay Wagner, I don't have to push my hair back <laughs> in order for the ears to work. It, it has been amazing because I didn't realize how much I was missing. You know, with my implants, I heard soda fizz for the first time. I heard how loud the damn crickets were in my backyard, which, you know, sounded very minor. I heard a clock ticking. I all of a sudden was realizing I was singing the wrong song. <laughs> so many songs that I thought I knew the right words. And I didn't. So my voice is still horrible, but I do sing the right words now. 
Well, you're not alone there. I mean, you know, people who have perfect hearing sing the wrong words for most songs. <laughs> so they learn them from the radio and nah, it doesn't work all that well. Okay, so it cracked me up the first time we talked about this, and I saw you pull one of the external things off, and then it just kind of snapped back onto your head, which has me convinced that you're actually Iron Man under that synthetic skin of yours. You've got a steel (laughs) skull. So I have heard described, and honestly, I don't remember if it was you that said this or something I read from one of the resources you sent me, that the process of learning to use the implant, meaning meaning to interpret what you're you know hearing, is kind of like a fax machine at first. That it, you, you don't suddenly hear voices and crickets and everything else. That you actually have to train yourself to know that that sound is my wife's voice, or that sound is a cricket, or that sound is one of the children. Can you give me kind of a brief overview of what that process was like and what it really sounded? Because you had the benefit of hearing before you lost your before you lost your hearing, so. Kind of what, what was that like? It was weird at first. Because some people pick up speech right away. For me, as, you know, as you noted, it sounded like a fax machine. It was a bunch of tones. Part of it was, you know, let's just say watching captions on TV. So I, I was hearing sounds and I was looking at the words. And your brain starts associating the sounds with the words. And you start to pick out words. It's like, oh, yeah, I actually hear what you're saying. This is weird. And it doesn't sound initially normal. I mean, tones are off. Things are a little odd. And part of that is they have to adjust the programming in terms of which electrodes get, you know, what amount of power, how are your nerves responding. But the more you practice, so for example, I had CD. And listening to the CD, they would say, you know, listen to this voice. Is this a male or a female? Is this person high-pitched or low-pitched? And in the beginning, I, you know, as somebody who was always an A student, I was getting 50s and 60s, and I was shocked. But over time, I started getting it more. And, you know, things like, you know, different sounds. You know, can I tell the difference between the ah of an A versus an E, E sound or an O sound? And being able to pick that up, was I able to tell the difference between words like pot and pit, which are different? Was I able to tell the difference if you think about uh, the P sound for a P, the M sound of an M? N, you know, the N sound of an N. Some of these are very close. It's kind of like that fine tuning. And the thing that's weird, you know, part of this, you know, you'll hear something. Let's just say the fizz. Well, I didn't realize it was fizz. You know, I'm I'm hearing this stuff. And I'm trying to, you know, it's like I, you know, it sounds like, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like static kind of a weird sound. I was like, what is that? What is that? And and they said, what are you talking about? I said, it seems to be coming from in front of me. Is there anything in front of me that's making sounds? (laughs) And, you know, my son said, dad, that's the fizz. You just poured yourself a Coke. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, you know, that's what fizz sounds like. I was in the family room and I heard this really loud, irritating sound. I'm like, what the heck is that? Oh, that's the ice maker. The ice is dropping, you know, in the refrigerator. I'm like, 
holy cow, that is loud and that is really annoying. And, and to this day, if I'm in the kitchen and my wife is using the ice maker to fill up a glass with ice, you know, I kind of cringe because, I mean, that, that tone is just irritating. And she'll try to talk to me while she's getting ice. It's like, that's not going to work. We've kind of covered this, but the process of, of getting the implants put in, tell me about that. What, what do they do? When the implants first were developed, was probably back in the late 80s, early 90s. And they were very rudimentary. So, you know, I mentioned about having 24 electrodes. The first ones only had four. So you can imagine what that probably sounded like. And, and I've heard tapes of what that sounds like versus, you know, what I'm hearing now. The criteria early on was you had to be super, super bad. I mean, virtually hear nothing before they would do this because the, the quality wasn't there. Over time, as the technologies improved, the criteria, I guess, have come up from being so low. So at the time for me, and, and this was weird because you know I'd always be getting hearing tests and the goal was not to mess up because that meant things were getting worse. Well, when it came time to the cochlear implant, that was the one test you didn't want to guess. You had to say exactly what you heard because the goal was to qualify so you can get the implant. So you actually have to get worse before you can get better. And, you know, that's the FDA for you. But in order to qualify, the loss has to be, so they talk about threshold. You have to not hear until you know, 70 to 120 decibels. And, you know, that's like you wouldn't hear a lawnmower if you were standing next to it. So it, it has to be that loud for you to hear. So one is the thresholds. The second is understanding words. And the way they test that, I was so used to the, the boy took the baseball and the bat to the park. You know, you hear that enough times, you hear ball. You're like, okay, ball and what? Ball and bat. So you would be guessing and filling that in instinctively, even if you didn't hear. But the test they did was random words. So it might have been, you know, Mary took her cat because the cat wanted tea. Well, you wouldn't necessarily put a cat in wanting tea. So you had to actually understand the words. Or might say, Bob rode his dog to the river. Well, you wouldn't ride a dog. <laughs> so they can actually tell what percentage you're getting. And you had to get, at least at the time I got mine, less than 40% of the words. So imagine having a conversation and you're missing 40% of the words. And that was the first test. I was very happy. I was thrilled to fail. Is it meant I could get help? I think it was the last time we talked or the time before you had me cracking up because you were talking about the fact that you had upgraded your head to include a new form of Bluetooth and streaming and a variety of other things. So let's, let's talk about this. So we're doing this on Zoom 
And I know that you have a variety of assistive devices in front of you that I can't see, of course, that are part of this whole process. Can you kind of explain to me what you've got there and talk about the Zoom and the Bluetooth and all that other stuff? Sure. The internal parts are meant to last for a long, long time, and they have a lot of excess capacity. What gets upgraded, I say somewhat frequently, is the external processor in terms of how it processes the signal, how it receives the signal. And that gets better and better. And so the richness of what you hear gets better. The signal gets better. And I assume that the implanted element that has the that has the fine electrodes on it, I assume that's a passive device. There's no battery in that. Is that correct? Correct. With this latest version, so before I had a wire that connected from my implants that I plugged into the audio jack on the phone. So I had to be tethered. Well, now it's Bluetooth. So when I get a phone call or I want to listen to music, there's no wires between me and my iPhone. And different people have different experiences with music. Some people say, you know, it doesn't sound like it used to before. I can listen to something in stereo, two ears, and the signal, you know, just like, you know, if you were wearing uh, AirPods, you'd hear different things in each ear, and I can tell the difference. Now, I don't listen to rap. I don't listen to, you know, things that have complicated vocals because that's hard. But I can listen to, like, Bolero or Beethoven's Fifth or Vivaldi with the four seasons. And I can tell the different instruments and I can tell what's coming from the left and from the right. So it's all digital and, it, and it's amazing. Now, in the case of using Zoom, I have a small microphone. That microphone has Bluetooth capability. So I have a plug into the audio jack on my laptop that plugs into the microphone. The microphone transmits via Bluetooth directly to my processors. So there are no wires. And the quality of sound is better than hearing through the speakers on the computer. The quality of sound is as if I'm across the table from you. You know, I'm not getting the background noise. I'm not hearing, you know, my dog was barking. I'm not hearing a lawnmower in my yard. I'm hearing the conversation. So just a curiosity question then, if, if you were to reach up and pop off the magnetic processors on the outside, what happens to your hearing? I mean, what do you hear at that point? Zero, nothing. So, you know, if I take the processors off, I forget the uh, Adam Sandler movie, but when he presses mute on the remote and all of a sudden people's lips are moving, but there's no sound. That's what it's like. And it's really weird because, you know, I tried this once because, you know, they said this happened. So, like, I talked about the ice maker being really irritating. Well, if I take the processors off, I don't hear the ice. The ice is dropping, but the brain's like, gee, that's weird. You're not hearing any sound. Now, that's a blessing and a curse because when I go to sleep, I've had the experience where I've slept through fire alarms in a hotel. So when I stay at a hotel, I need to stay in a uh, disability room because they have strobes 
connected to the fire alarm. And that strobe is what will wake me up and prevent me from being toast. I have a vibrating alarm clock. You know, so uh, if my wife's not home and able to poke me, she gets up before me when it's time for me to get up. I have to set a vibrating alarm clock and put it under my pillow so it starts vibrating. So I wake up because, you know, I wouldn't hear. So I sleep literally in silence. So I used to joke as my hearing got worse. You know, that when I started, you know, I was 25 years old but I had ears like a 70 year old. And probably by the time I got the implants, I had the hearing of somebody who was probably a centurion. But when I got the implants, my hearing got reset and I was kind of like in my thirties again. And while everybody else's ears are getting older, my ears get upgraded every five to seven years. So I'll never have old ears ever. Which is kind of funny because everybody used to hear better than me is now hearing worse and the shoes on the other foot. And now they're starting to understand what it means to have hearing loss. Okay, what have we not said that needs to be said? Anything in particular? I think something that's important and something that I have, you know, the benefit and honor of doing is helping people be better informed. You know, I'm like a walking advertisement. You know, there's not a time when I go into a supermarket or a mall or I'm just walking in the neighborhood and somebody comes up to me and says, what are those? So I can educate them. And they're like, oh, you know, my mother, my father, my cousin, my grandson, you know, they have hearing loss. Would this help them? And I get to share my experience. I get to make referrals. I give people hope when they maybe didn't have hope before. They are having issues and like, oh, you know, my mother and father, they don't socialize anymore. They can't hear, they don't want to go out to, to restaurants with friends because it's just frustrating. Well, now they have an option. And that for me is just so exciting. That's my way of giving back because I learned about these from other people and that helped my father get them and helped me get them. So, you know, that education, awareness, uh, I'm a member of a couple of different Facebook groups that are hopefully are implant focused. And people are joining the group and saying, you know, I think I just qualified or what do I need to do to qualify? I've heard, you know, it's really hard to learn. What is it really like? You know, somebody says, you know, I'm 30 years old. You know, what is this like in work? versus somebody who's 60 and 70 really, you know, might not be caring about work anymore. They want to know if they're going to hear their friends when they go out to coffee or they play bridge or something like that. So, you know, being able to share those stories, uh, you know, reduce people's fears, help them understand the potential provides amazing benefits. Now, that experience is different, you know, for different people. But I'd say most people get some level of benefit, some very significant. I mean, my hearing, at least in a soundproof room, is close to normal. When I hear a noise is still challenging, you know, with background noise. But that, you know, that can be challenging for everybody. You know, with this technology, I have four different programs. So I can cut out background noise so that it it focuses on what's in front of me and the chatter behind me is suppressed. 
I can have a very narrow, so I'm, I'm only going to hear you sitting directly across from me and not everything else around. So if I have it in that focus and my wife is sitting next to me, I won't hear her, but I'll hear, hear the person across the table. Or I can open that up. So think about a pie. So I can hear 360 degrees, or I might only hear a thin slice of that pie. My friend Jay Weiser, the only cyborg I know. Jay, thank you for taking the time to explain your own experience with hearing loss and how you regained it. And thanks for being such a giving person when it comes to advocacy and education. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.